0: Welcome back to the content lab. I am your host, as always, Impact's editorial director, Liz Moorhead. And I am joined by my trusty sidekick, Impact Revenue and Features Editor, John Becker. How's it going, my man?
1: Hey Liz. Things are great.
0: That's it. Things are I'm just getting things are great. I understand that you and I in our jobs literally talk all the time. But like let's put up like some some, you know, sort of show. <laughs> Great. Oh We've yeah. Talked well, in twelve minutes, and you know, <laughs> it's
1: it's true. We haven't we haven't recorded this show in a long time. Uh, no. There's been some vacation, but it's it's a beautiful fall day. Everything is wonderful. Yeah, things are good.
0: Yeah. Apparently the bar the dog barking in the distance agrees, or he disagrees. I can't tell whether or not he also agrees. It's a it's a beautiful fall day. But that's where we're at. Hold on. this. Boop. That's I the love when. With- the real world uh, leaks into our recordings. Have you ever noticed that? Like, I know we've all been working from home now for many, 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 many months, but I still feel bad when people figure out, oh, so she's just doing all of her work from an awkward rickety card table shoved to the <laughs> side of the patio door next to her coffee table. And that's fine. No, it's been, fine. it has been a while. Like, I've been on... Well, I did two vacations. One was like a vacation with training wheels where I pretended to go on vacation, but then worked for half (laughs) of it. And so I did, I was like, okay, once more with feeling, let's try to go on vacation again. And it worked out, but yeah, um, things have been good. I have been doing a lot of meetings today and try to group them together because I, I'm not very good at context switching and I don't know if you have this problem, but I tend to struggle on days where I have to do a lot of content creation, but then I'm also supposed to be, you know, like on for meetings and I really struggle with that. So I have, I've since broken those up. So yesterday was a lot of content creation and today is a lot of meetings. So I just came out of like a couple of content coaching sessions. I have one later this afternoon and it just the mental energy that requires I don't know if you ever struggle with that, but I had to start separating it out
1: yeah i I completely agree. I think everything we know about brain science shows us that transitions are really difficult, oh yeah, and um you know I was a teacher for a while, and a lot of schools are rethinking the way that they structure days because you know when I went to high school, it was like forty five minute class, three minutes break, then forty five minutes class then three minutes break and and you're supposed to in three minutes switch and like remember what you read for you know biology last night or what you you know how to speak French or something like that and I think in the exact same way with uh, with work I, th- I think it's just how it is like being in a meeting I need a little bit of runway and then a little bit of kind of cool down time before I go into like a, a next task and I, I like to be able to dictate those transitions myself so if I'm feeling like I'm working on something but I'm hitting some sort of dead end then that's time to kind of shift gears and work on something else but if I am really plugged in and dialed in and things are going really well it's nice to be able to like wipe the calendar and just plow through something that's going really well and the reality of our working life is that we don't always have that luxury we have to switch between talking to colleagues between talking to a client between a recurring meeting between Uh, you know, any different thing that we do during during the course of the day. And that is really disruptive for our focused work.
0: I know. I just, I feel really bad for people whenever I have to do a content coaching session that's at the end of a day after I've spent all day inside of my head. I don't know if you've ever struggled with this, but there is a very big difference in my verbal communication skills on days where I'm highly focused on writing and not talking to people it's like watching a pony learn to walk you're like watching me (laughs) relearn how to structure sentences that aren't like abstract and tangential like i'm verbally feeling along a wall trying to find a light switch to turn on like the light in the room and then there are days like this when i'm used to talking and i'm good like i'm on point i know how to structure everything quickly but man i feel for those people doing them a disservice, <laughs> but I guess that kind of leads us into the topic you wanted to talk about today, which is not necessarily anybody in the hot seat, just a nice little conversation. So what are we talking about today? Yeah, a bit
1: of a round table. I, I'll, I don't know if it's, is it still a round table if there are only two people?
0: Technically, I'm sitting at a square coffee table, but I could yeah. see it. has rounded corners.
1: I'm rectangular here.
0: Look at us, a bunch of squares. <laughs> anyway.
1: The idea is that that I thought we could use this as kind of like a a toss-up topic. It's something that you and I both do. It's something we don't talk about on this show very very often, if at all, um, or at least not as a dedicated topic. And you already alluded to it that you were doing it earlier earlier today, and that is content coaching. And I know sometimes you've even given it the term content therapy. So I'm going to get into that, or I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But First, can you like, to you broadly, what is content coaching?
0: I think first what we need to be very clear about is that this is, what we're about to discuss today is a step above what, we tra- what content nerds traditionally do. So if you're a digital marketer who's overseeing content creation and you're looking at drafts or you're the content manager or content writer who's also very in the weeds looking at drafts, what we are talking about is something that's layered far above just sitting down and editing a draft that is right in front of you. Content coaching is where you have someone that you've either identified or you've mutually agreed upon, like I want to level up. I'm not just here to create a great article that answers a question that our ideal buyers have in the best and most honest and thorough way possible. I want to become, for lack of a better term, a thought leader. I want to really excel in this area. For me, creating content isn't just checking the box. And so John or myself or other people will then work with them one-on-one to really level up that. Now, what we will talk about today, content coaching then does leak into kind of those day-to-day feedback on a draft conversations. But I did just want to at least kind of clearly delineate, we're not talking about just like regular editing and giving feedback. This is something that's a little bit higher up. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really kind of a good place to start that conversation is understanding really what it is.
1: Yeah, agreed. And I think that also, you know, it, it suggests that there's, that there's a relationship here and that there is a desire for that coaching from, from the other side too. Like you said, it's someone who wants to level up their, what they produce, level up their voice and, and their authority. And they have to be in the right mindset to sort of accept that coaching. And they have to, I think, want that coaching.
0: Oh yeah, because that's that's the difference between like editing and giving feedback to get a specific article across the line and really focusing on the person in front of you as the coach, as we are, and helping them holistically level up their skill sets more broadly, like right. starting to teach them principles of storytelling, being able to have brutally honest conversations. Like I was having a content coaching session literally right before this. And I told you right before we started recording, um, I, I looked at uh, the introductory section of the straps. Someone had given me someone who has a really big personality, a very specific way of speaking. And I had to tell him, I'm not sure who you wrote this to. I'm not actually sure you know either. And if you were to slide this, if someone were to slide this across my desk, I wouldn't be able to tell who wrote it. And Mm -hmm. that is a huge problem. So you have to be able to have those conversations and have that trust there. So it becomes a much deeper conversation. You're solving, you're teaching skills, you're teaching techniques but you're also breaking through some mental barriers, which is where the term content therapy came from, which I'm sure you'll (laughs) dig into a little bit more. So I like that
1: because it alludes to the idea that these, and it's something that you always say, and I really agree with that any editorial work is inherently about a relationship. You know, Mm -hmm. it's about trust and it's about um, dialogue. And it's about, um, you know, that, that there are, it shouldn't be a, a, a an ordinate and subordinate relationship in which you know like person the the editor person has has all the sort of control and say, even though that is their role. There has to be a give and take. And I like how those conversations that you're alluding to happen because you work with the same people month after month after month after month. Mm-hmm. So you have developed a really strong relationship a trusting relationship so that when you give that kind of feedback, they're not going to wither and shut down and, and think that they're being, you know, scolded or reprimanded. They're going to thrive.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, that, that's the whole point. Like it's, it's the Godfather saying, it's not, it's not personal. It's business. You know, like it, these are not <laughs> personal attacks. These are not meant to, if anything, what I'm meant to do is like to show them like often with content coaching, it's getting people out of their own way. It's removing a lot of the, the the artifice and the architecture and all of those different things that people have put in front of themselves that stand in their way of their true voice. So often it ends up not feeling like a personal attack once they really understand what it is that we're doing there. It's helping them just sound more like themselves.
1: It's so tough though, because people are so personally invested in their writing, even when they like claim not to be so, It can be hard. I mean, you and I both write for a living and edit for a living. And we it's hard not to be attached to what we produce.
0: Well, that's one thing you say a lot that I really like, which is writing is an inherently vulnerable act. (laughs) And I'd love for you to dive a little bit more deeply into that because I think that really gets to the heart of what content coaching is, that trust factor that we've been talking about. So when you say it's a vulnerable act, what do you mean? There's something that um,
1: Joan Didion once wrote in um, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, where she said something to the effect of, um, "In writing, you're always selling someone out." And she was a she was a journalist, so she was writing these essays, and and in order to like tell that story, you kind of get someone to trust you, and then kind of share that trust with the world. I mean, that that's kind of a natural rule of journalism, and I, I think the the inverse of that is also true like in, in writing you're always kind of selling yourself out you know you're always risking something like we we all know when we try to be you write such great humor you know not like not that it is overtly humorous but there's always great humor in in the latest which you write and and you and i both know like humor is is hard it's so hard and and sometimes it doesn't land even when we try and i think we also know that Sometimes you can kind of try too hard to make something funny or try too hard to make something meaningful. You know, writing is a vulnerable act because in the end we put something out there and then we are, you know, judged and evaluated on it in in any number of different ways. And the tricky part is once it's out there, we no longer have control over it. And that that's where part of the vulnerability comes in. Of course, we can, you know, go back and change something or, or update an article but you can't stand there for each reader and say like, well, what I meant to say was this, like the work is there, the work is done and you have to kind of give it out to the world. And all of the risks that are associated are written into the process.
0: So how does that knowledge influence how you approach content coaching relationships? Because one thing I will say that is fascinating and, and you and I have talked about this and along with Ramona, Is that we each have very different styles and that actually lends itself very well to the fact that not everybody needs the same kind of coach. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I, we joke that I'm the orphanage for wayward men who are coming up in the world and finding their voice. (laughs) Like like it's funny how like people tend to gravitate toward the coach they actually need. So talk to me a little bit about what your style is and how you view that relationship. And what's your orphanage orphanage populated with <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i i love uh i love what you said before and it's actually related to a book that you recommended that i'm reading which i'm going to cite when, when i share what i'm reading now which is um by margaret lightman long story short which i'm not far into i've only kind of just begun it but you know to a large extent we are um or I find myself in the role of encouraging people to tell their stories. Like, it's a lot of encouragement. Yes, there is the refinement that you talked about of kind of like calling someone out if they're not meeting expectations, but it's a lot of like, I think, getting people to trust themselves, trust their own voice, trust their expertise, and, you know, be willing to to like lean into a process that sometimes is is uncomfortable. I think Always on my mind are are like the larger relationships. Like you said, it's it's not just about getting this piece of content across the line. It's about getting this piece and all subsequent pieces of content to be better. And I think it's something that I try to bring to my um, to my editing and to my coaching every day. Which is rather than putting myself in the place of like the the arbiter of truth or the arbiter of quality, I try to just put myself in the place of, of a, a curious and, and attentive reader, you know? So so rather than saying like, you know, fix this or, or I'll just correct this for you, which I think sometimes editing and coaching can turn into, um, I find myself doing much more often, I'm stumbled here, you know, I stumbled here, or I want more information about this, or I don't totally understand this. Um, and sort of allowing the the writer to make those changes after they see, after I kind of hold up the mirror rather than going in and, and kind of slicing and dicing with red pen.
0: Gotcha. I, I really like what you said there because I think that's, that's what it comes down to, a couple of things that you said. Number one, are you the editor or are you someone who's actually there encouraging and empowering and really trying to bring out the best and helping people understand that like, they have the capabilities far beyond what they realize that they have? I, I, you know, you and I have talked many times before. Like the, there's always that literal and figurative fine line that you really have to be careful of as a content management professional. Whether you're someone like me, someone like you, someone who's more of a traditional content writer or a content manager, you can very easily, without realizing it, become just the red line editor, the person that someone fears, the person who only manifests themselves in some sort of physical work form as a as an As a correction you know and and like there's like there's a flip side to that like yes they
1: might fear you and fear your edits but you also become a crutch you also become something that they rely upon to say like oh well i'm just going to kind of get my ideas out send it to my editor and they're going to kind of sew it all together right they'll fix it because that's that's their role and i think you know there there's 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 a philosophy i think now i've i've young children where like you don't teach kids to ride with training wheels anymore. <clears throat> so when they're learning to ride a bike, you, you don't do training wheels because that doesn't teach them the essentials of balance, which are like everything you need in order to ride a bike. And, and that as kids become more and more reliant on training wheels, you're actually kind of impeding their ability to, to eventually take them off rather than if you just started without them.
0: Side note, I don't know how to ride a bike. In fact.
1: Is that true? That's true. Oh my goodness.
0: Well, I grew I well, guess. actually, nobody can see this. I'm wearing the my my hometown flag, DC, um, on my shirt. Uh, you didn't really ride bikes around there. And then we moved out to what would be considered the suburbs, but outside of my window was the Pentagon. So didn't really ride bikes <laughs> around there either. <laughs> and then I grew up to be so tall and my coordination skills are already so lacking just feet planted on the ground <laughs> that, add some
1: like, wheels and it's not going to get any better
0: i'm i'm turning 38 in a couple of weeks i feel like i'm at that age where i can decide what i do and do not like and what my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah hard. that's
1: fair totally it's get it. not it, totally an acquired
0: get it. taste like an olive it's biking i will die so I'm not <laughs> doing it. but i will take from the philosophical standpoint yeah yeah sure sure form. sure so,
1: All right. So, well, hold on. Let me, let me, so let me, with all of that in mind, with all of that kind of like philosophical underpinning, I would love for you to dive into like what I think you sometimes describe as, as the emotional underpinning. And that's the, that's the therapy part of content coaching. Like I, I see coaching. It makes sense. And anyone who, who you know, pays attention to sports, which I think is where we most commonly associate that term, realizes that a coach is a lot of different roles, plays a lot of different roles in order to get a team or an athlete to be their best. But a therapist is something different.
0: Yes. So content therapy. Okay. So content therapy is... A term that I actually need to give credit to. I've only ever seen it used one other place. And actually, ironically, it's a, it's a publication I've written for before, which is managingeditor.com. Um, but it actually happened by accident. So content therapy began as something where I was forced to start interviewing people as a content manager. And I'd never been a content manager before. This is about five or six years ago, and I had just become the content manager what was then Quintain Marketing before we merged with Impact. At the time, five or six years ago, that's like dog years in the inbound marketing world. Content managers weren't really a thing. They ask you answer by Marco Sheridan hadn't even been uh, published yet, and he was only just starting to talk about this role, which is where she had heard about it. I came from a journalism and publishing background. And I had done like a lot of interviewing in the past and, you know, I wrote like a little paper, like a little article in the paper about gear. So I was pretty, I was pretty well versed in interviewing and we had started taking that tack because of my background in order to interview subject matter experts from clients. And, you know, when you do it from a journalism perspective, you go in, you have your, you know, you're doing a story. And both people on each side of the equation, we both know what the topic is. They're ready to talk about their product. They're ready to talk about their beer. They're ready to talk about how their brewery got started. And I thought it would pretty much be the same. I thought, you know, I'd be sitting down with these, you know, C-level executives and or like subject matter experts about things they're experts in and it would be fine. And we all knew what we were talking about. We all knew what we were supposed to be doing. And then I just noticed like the content I was getting wasn't right. Right. And when I say it wasn't right, I would mean a lot of different things. Um, It would be written in a way that is completely not digestible to the people they were trying to reach. Or I noticed they were relying on it like a crutch on a lot of like boilerplate language, like because they were so used to talking about whatever that thing was. Or people would get on the phone with me and say things like, well, I don't know why I'm the one talking about this. I'm like, I don't really have anything interesting to say. And there were all of these weird little symptoms. And I'm like, what, what is going on? And so I stopped relying so heavily on my boilerplate questions and just started talking to the person in front of me. And these were people I very rarely ever met in person. So there was no video conferencing at that point. We were like on a phone (laughs) and I'm sitting here and I'm having these conversations and it all started with one girl who was a digital asset management person. And she came from like a library science background. So she's very like, she's an introvert. She doesn't put herself out there. And I really struggled with her initially because she was doing everything she could to like not be the right person for it. Mm. And it turned out to be a lot of like negative self-talk. So I'd say, why why don't you think you have anything interesting to say? why are you saying that? Well, I don't really do this, that or together. I'm like, well, tell me about the last time you failed. I like started throwing out the topics that we had in front of us and started asking like, so, and then she would tell me something. I'm like, she's like, but that's not that interesting. I'm like, no, it is. Mm. That's interesting. Let's talk about that. And so I do a couple articles with them where I would get them like really comfortable and trusting of me and getting them to, You know, in other cases, like it wasn't necessarily like negative self-talk. It was training people to understand, like, I need you to talk to me as if I don't understand what you're saying. Right. Because right now, literally, I actually don't understand what you're saying. (laughs) Talk to me as if we were sitting across the table. Like, how would you say this if I were sitting there? And it would be like wildly different from the answer they just gave me. And I'm like, so wait, why did you just do that? Why was that Uh. different? So then the therapy piece of it came when it actually, so it started becoming this thing where I had to like dig into the person and start understanding like, why do they have this crutch? Why are they putting up walls? Why are they doing this? It became a way of like selfishly me just trying to get what I want. Cause like my job was like, I need to have an article go up next week and it needs to like be good. Like it can't just be done. It has to be good.
1: So let me dig into that a little bit because- If you can trace this all to like that one call or one interview where this one person was like, how do you prep for those? Like, so if you if you realize that the boilerplate questions are not going to get the right answers, or the the content that's going to come from it is not answering the right questions, and you have to kind of get into the person and um you know, maybe some of the emotions that are, that are underneath the surface. How do you as an interviewer, especially if you don't know these people well, how do you prep for that?
0: How do you write those questions? That is such a loaded question. Um, it's tough. So I usually start all of those inner, so there's a difference between like a, like a session where we're sitting down and we don't know what we're talking about yet versus one where we do know what we're talking about. Sure, sure. So when I'm walking in, and let's just say I know what the topic is. Like, let's say the topic is, let's use something we talk about a lot. What are the most common problems you're going to run into with a revenue team? Like the things that will make them fail. And let's say I have one of our digital sales and marketing coaches in front of us, someone I haven't worked with before. Probably the first five minutes is going to be a little bit of just like, Banter, getting into the groove, getting them comfortable. You usually don't want to dive right into the interview yet. And then what I do is I say, okay, I want you to pretend that we're not on a video call right now. And I'm not me. I'm this person who has sat down, we're sitting at a table, and I sit down abruptly and I say, hi, my name's Liz. I have a question. What are the most common problems I'm going to run into? when I'm running a revenue team. Okay, who am I? And then I ask them to paint my world around me. And what's very fascinating is we very quickly kind of get into the content therapy stuff without having me to have to do things like, tell me about your childhood. You know, like, (laughs) we don't have to go there. But like, that's where we start, we start very small by saying, oh, you know, well, they're like a, they're like a content manager or digital marketing manager. I'm like, no, I know that's table stakes. Why did I sit down? Did I did I rush up? Am I stressed? Am I happy or am I sad? And basically we start from a place of have a little emotional intelligence about who is the person that you're talking to. I'm like, great. Okay, so what do I need from you? Because the answer is obvious, but do I need to feel like comforted? Do I need you to remove pain? Am I frustrated? Am I skeptical? And you need to earn my trust? I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay. So like if I'm skeptical and you need to earn my trust, then you need to say, I can tell you're skeptical and here's exactly why you're skeptical and like spell it out. Or if you're someone where, if I were to rush up, like think about being a human being. If I sat down at the table, I'm clearly stressed. Maybe I'm not out of breath, but you can see it in my face. You're probably at some point going to, in the pre-COVID times, reach across the table and be like, Hey, it's going to be okay. We're going to figure this out together. Right. Like, oh, then you need to say that. So that's usually where those conversations start. I still usually have some boilerplate things in my head, but they're not necessarily questions. It's more of, okay, so in my head, I'm that content manager. We're talking about revenue team problems. We need to identify what those problems are, why they exist, and how you solve them. That's pretty much the beats I need to cover. So as long, so I let that be more of an organic conversation. And I usually just have a piece of paper in front of me that says, I need to be able to get to these three things. That is what will make this article successful. And then I just kind of go from there. Hmm. So. That's a good answer. Thank you. Felt long so it, but that's it, what I
1: do. <laughs> it, it's interesting because like, It seems like there are two aspects of content coaching or content therapy. And and one is, um, which we'll, we'll talk probably more about, um, which is sort of like getting to the root of who's telling it, you know, who's telling this, whether they're writing it or you're writing it, but, um, you know, getting to the root of who is speaking and then getting to the root of who is listening. And like, if you miss either of those, you know, that, I mean, that's like, that's like, that's Aristotle. Like that's the basics of rhetoric, you know, it's, it's the rhetorical triangle. And if you, if you don't have like the, the speaker and the audience clear, then you miss your chances.
0: I, that's the thing. Like whether or not, like whether you're trying to sell something to someone or you're trying to like be in a relationship with someone fundamentally the way those two connections occur, is you make someone feel seen like if you're in like the b2b space like for example if you're in the space like we are like we're agencies often when we're working with a prospect who hasn't signed on yet they're not just looking at impact they're looking at other agencies and sometimes quite frankly we will lose to other agencies and that's fine just in the way that other agencies will lose to us sometimes but one of the most frustrating things that can happen is that when they say well when it came down to it it was like a culture fit and it's like Mm, no, no, maybe, but what they're really saying is somehow the other person got them to like them first and they felt more seen with that person, that agency than they do here. Yeah. They, Mm -hmm. they, they like, and we call that euphemistically trust and trust is kind of a euphemism in this case, because one of my favorite questions to ask whenever I start coaching somebody is, okay, so we say we're in the business of trust and you're trying to establish trust, and you're trying to build trust. So what does it look like? What is trust building in content? What does it manifest itself as? What's the outcome? And really what it is and what I lead them to is that you create a moment for someone where they say, oh, my gosh, you're a fucking mind reader. How did you know that? That's me. Or, you know, I'm a little skeptical, but something you said has piqued my interest. I'm intrigued. Like you cook them, you give them something that they can latch onto and relate to, and they feel like understood, seen, something. Or it's one of the reasons why, when I stand on stage and talk about content, usually the first thing I do within the first 30 seconds is try to make someone laugh. Because laughter is something that is extremely contagious, and it makes people feel good, and chemically, it releases a lot of stuff, but it has to be organic.) Um, because I talk about something that's inherently boring and people tune out. Like you and I are specialists in homework. We have built an entire industry around a process which is the act of creating content which the vast majority of people struggle with or outright despise, if not both. So last year when I got on stage in front of 700 people to talk about pillar content, which is not just content, it's 10,000 words worth of content, Super content. Yeah. I said the first thing out of my mouth when people clapped as I was coming on stage, I said, this is such a nice change from the normal. Usually I'm workshopping my material with my cat and everybody laughed and I went, I don't understand why you're laughing. I'm serious. Let's move on. And then a big picture of Han Solo came up behind me. Like, you know, like I have to, you know, like that's the thing you have to get people to kind of buy into you and want to listen to you. And sometimes it's that marriage of seeing them or something else. Like trust is a very nebulous thing that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. So that's the other core. Like if we're talking more broadly, that's the first real lesson I'm teaching people when we, when we go into content coaching, if we're not around like an actual topic. Yeah. So for
1: content managers out there who are aware of the benefits that that those relationships and specifically those those sort of coaching and, and therapeutic relationships can bring to their company's content creation. How do you do this? How do you get started?
0: I started by accident. The way you start is honestly, I would take a page out of your book. When you start running into barriers to getting what you want because like quite frankly like I told you at the beginning of this content therapy did not start as some sort of philanthropic act where I'm like I want to empower others to find their voices I'm like I need a piece of content to be published next week and I don't want to have to rewrite it I need it to be right and I don't need the answer to be right like the way I always joke is like They're asking and you're answering, but one, there's such a thing as a bad answer. And two, if your answer is right, but also completely forgettable and doesn't like, and isn't sticky, then you just wasted your time. Right? So I need that to be right. So ask the questions that are in your head that are, that will get you around the barriers. Like if someone's not giving you the answer, don't be afraid to be like, you know what, let's, let's stop for a second. I've asked you a lot of questions. And they basically could have just come out of a brochure. So let's take a step back. Like, again, we're sitting at the table. I'm a human being, or you keep saying the same thing, or you keep saying I'm not interesting. You have to be like, no, you are interesting. Tell me a story about a thing. And maybe set aside that topic. And maybe that's a topic you come back to later. You have to be willing to be, meet the person in front of you and like really understand who they are as people. Like, and the reason where content therapy came from as a term, by the way, even though like I've seen it in a couple other places, as I've mentioned, it started because Chris Dupre, who came on as our COO and now he's our lead, they ask you answer strategist and digital sales and marketing coach. um, He and I were sitting down and he had, and I had built trust with me as his editor because he knew he had a lot of stories and ideas, but he needed kind of the structure. So one of our first meetings was just really sitting down and trying to find what stories were there to tell. And I just kept asking questions and we tripped mentally into a story about the army that made him cry. And then he went, this isn't coaching, this is fucking therapy. And often that, that is what happens once you start getting at that higher level. Like when, I, when I've worked with other people in the C-suite, you know, one of the biggest questions I get is like, I'm a CEO, what the heck should I be writing about? I'm like, well, I don't know what's in your brain, so let's go digging and find out. Mm-hmm. And for example, one of the pieces that came out of that exercise was one of our most popular pieces last year, which is that it's not a crime to be nice as a leader by Bree, who is our COO now. Yeah. And that came out of me asking a question that I often ask at the start of a content therapy relationship where I'm really more cultivating a thought leader and they have a little bit more autonomy over what they get to write, which is I'm like, okay, we're going to write about the last time you were really upset. Tell me about the last time you did that thing that we all do, which is you're walking around in your life and you look in the mirror and you catch your eyes and like something has upset you. And you're not willing to look at it I'm like, well, what was the thing? What happened? Okay. Tell me that story. And then the first exercise I had them do is I'm like, I want you to write in as much detail what that moment was. And it was her sitting at her dining room table and her husband came home. She was drinking a glass of wine and he asked, how were things going? And she immediately started crying. (laughs) I'm like, great. So that's what we're going to start with. (laughs) We're going to start there and work our way out. So content coaching can take on a bunch of different forms, but therapy, it's called therapy now because ultimately you have to be very comfortable and open to being yourself in order to be the most effective content creator possible. Like people think I have a lot of confidence. I am like dry heaving into a paper bag every time I do anything. Like, you're just so funny and just so confident. I'm like, every time I mention my cat, I'm always afraid someone's going to go, divorced cat lady right up front. Like, everybody's dealing with that. Like, it's not easy to put yourself out there and just sound like a lunatic if you're like me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, everybody has a very distinct voice, but we've all been trained to put on this business human suit where we're like, well, we can't sound like ourselves and I got to put on my tie. And like, have you ever seen someone sit down at a computer when they're about to write? like? they'll be like doing their work. And then all of a sudden they're like, I gotta write this blog article. And you see literally their back goes more rigid and they're like mentally prepping themselves as if they're about to go run a marathon while also carrying 25 pound weights in each hand. Like it doesn't work. Anyway, so yeah.
1: Um, So two things that that come up for me as you say that. One is, there's a series, I think it's done by, by Jimmy Fallon and The Tonight Show called the worst I ever bombed. And they have all of these, like, you know, a list comics, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, Steve Martin, Chris Rock, like that, you know, that level of, of celebrity. And they just tell these stories about like the worst gigs ever where they just, you know, tried their material. It just didn't work and they had to like, stand up there and go through it and get heckled, you know, just like awful. And and I think it's 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 good to remember that even when we think, even when we got all the all the skills and all the talent in the world and all the, you know, we think we have the answers, it can still go wrong mm-hmm. sometimes for reasons that we can't, um that we can't control. And the second thing is you talked about sort of getting someone outside of uh, you know, sounding like a brochure or sounding like a website, sounding like Uh, something that's already uh, you know almost Mm pre-programmed and it's funny because what I find myself doing in because I interview a lot of people for various things and um, so I'll write the questions in advance and I think that puts people at ease they feel like they know you know Mm -hmm. what they're what they're going to be asked what the topic is Um, but really invariably I tend to ask a non-scripted follow-up as my second question like that that happens pretty much every time i do it and i do it sort of by nature but but i also i'm intentional about it and and i think it immediately sort of breaks the script of what can feel like a pre-canned series of responses and um i think it makes people i don't want to say puts them on their heels because i don't want to make it sound like it's it's antagonistic or it's aggressive or anything like that. But I think if they say, okay, well, I have these eight questions to answer. I already know what I'm gonna say. And then they answer question one and then question two is not on the sheet. Question two is something totally different and it makes them have to sort of, you know, break their stride a little bit. And what you get after that is just more human.
0: Oh, 100%. You're a lot nicer than I am. And I also like her, like <laughs> i interview people for various things. You your entire, you are an interview swami. If somebody is not like, if I had a beautiful Arabian horse of a subject matter expert who can't be broken, I'm like, you're going to go talk to John and he's going to fix everything. and I'm going to get what I want. So he's, he, I just want our listeners out there to be aware. Like he's like a swami and a wizard. I don't know how you do what you do. I'm a little bit meaner though. Cause sometimes if you have some like I'm someone who very much plays to the person who's right in front of me. And when I say plays to, I don't mean like I'm catering to them and appeasing them. I mean, I will sometimes adjust my strategy entirely. When I've dealt with some C-levels in the past who are very like control freaky and things like that, I sometimes initially will actually not give them questions, especially if they ask for them. i be like, no, you're going to show up. You know the topic we're talking about, right? You're an expert in it, right? Great. You don't need the questions. You don't need them. I know you want them. And they'll be like, no, but I need them like, no, you're not, you're not gonna get them. And the reason being is I need them to understand that they need to trust me and they need to trust the process. And it also creates a space where go out, be that ball buster, be that C level, be that amazing person. But when you're with me, show me the mess. And it's okay to show me the mess. Show me the mess so that we put it back together and clean it up. And then when you go to the world, it's amazing. And then I will teach you how to clean up your own mess yourself. But I can't teach you how to do that unless I know what mess is already there. I can't help you do that. But also it's a level of it's a power dynamic shift. You have a lot of like and it depends again. Like, are you talking to an expert? Are you talking to someone who likes a lot of control? You know, they, they're ha- they have to trust you and be willing to work with you. But that means at the beginning, you're like, all right, these are my rules. You are actually, I am the coach. <laughs> you don't tell me we're running laps and how many, like I am the coach. And it's not a matter of like trying to like exert authority and you only do it in very certain circumstances, but it's precisely what you said. It's that moment of, I don't want you planning for this. I just want to know what you would actually just say. And it's not a test. We're going to have a conversation and it's just going to happen to be recorded. So I'm a content manager. I'm hearing what you're saying. I've been really inspired by this conversation, but I'm a little nervous. Like how and where do I start flexing these muscles as a coach or a therapist in my day-to-day just creating content? Because like, I may not necessarily have the luxury of being able to work with high level thought leaders or the the ability to say like, we don't need to write about this thing that's right in front of us. I dictate what we write about. Like, how do I start flexing that muscle? What's my, what's my baby step number one?
1: I think baby step number one, you know, it's, it's something you said, Liz, before, which um, it can maybe sound like a little bit manipulative, but I think you have to sort of get people to like you. You know, you said when, when someone chooses another agency over yours and they said culture fit, what they're really saying is they like, they got me more. They understood me more. They, um, there's something there that isn't, isn't here. And you've always really encouraged me and, um, and validated the building of relationships with the people that we work with. And, um, I've been at Impact now for about a year and a half. And and I think, getting to a place where people trust you or trust me um who come to me with their questions who are you know see me as someone who can who can help them you know as i said before writing is a is a vulnerable process but when it goes well i mean it's it's pure magic there's there's Mm -hmm. like there's nothing like it and when people produce something that they're really proud of um it's it's wonderful and so the payoff is massive. And if people can see you as a, you know, like a, a trusted guide or a friend or a, 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 a someone to bounce ideas off of, those feel to me like the, the first steps. And there are people that I work with regularly and there are people that you work with regularly who don't see us as, I mean, yes, I think they see us as authorities, but that's not like, when we go to therapy, we don't go to therapy because the therapist has all the answers. We go to therapy because the therapist has all the questions. And when they ask those questions at the right time, they, like you said, you, you're you in a position of self-discovery and then what you get out of that is is so meaningful and so transformative.
0: See, this is why I wanted you to answer the last question. <laughs> you're right. That's why I always like one of the things that I'm sure everyone on my team, yourself included, is probably sick of hearing is that, yeah, we are all content specialists and that's our background. But the number one thing we are is relationship managers first. The minute the relationship breaks is the minute no one will create content for us. No one want to work with us. No one will want to do the thing. There will be no number of cat jokes or Han Solo photos I can flash in front of people to get them to do what they want.
1: Uh, so Liz, teach us something what do you uh, what's going on in the learning corner today
0: I'm not necessarily teaching so much as I'm, I'm holding a miniature Festivus and airing a grievances if you will John this will also be familiar to you this is more of an intervention a plea to all brands out there just because you think a term or a phrase is important doesn't mean you should capitalize it like a proper noun I go to so many business websites. I read so many blog articles, and I'll just see arbitrary words capitalized, not in all caps, but just that first letter is capitalized as if it is a proper noun, like a name or a branded term or the capital of Portugal. Like, for example, for a long time when inbound marketing first came out, inbound marketing was capitalized like a proper noun. But guess what? It isn't a proper noun. So people will capitalize the names of services like we offer website design and website design is capitalized like it's a proper noun it is not please do not do that thing the reason why this is so critically important is not just because I'm a nitpicky butthead although if you ask John and Ramona every time I tell them no you can't capitalize that thing they would probably call me a nitpicky butthead but it is all about consistency That means every time somebody sits down, something is only getting capitalized based on the person who is sitting down and writing that thing. Those things are not proper nouns, they should never be capitalized. You need to have a style that is consistent because otherwise in one place website design will be capitalized and in another place it won't and it'll just look sloppy and messy. So be consistent, capitalize only things that are actual proper nouns or trademark branded terms. Thank you for coming for the rest of us. <laughs>
1: Nicely done. Nicely said.
0: So what are you reading? Now I'm doing it in the right order. What are you reading, John? Yeah, that,
1: that was really good. Deadly, uh, who
0: didn't mess up the order the first time.
1: So I will, uh, one thing I'm reading, I'm reading a, a bunch of things now, as I think you are and most of us are, but one thing I'm reading is what I mentioned before, which is a book called Long Story Short by Margaret Lightman. And uh, you recommended this book to me. I've, I've only just started it, so I don't want to speak too exhaustively on it, but Margot Lightman is a, um, is a veteran of a bunch of different, uh, you know, podcasts and, and shows and things like that, um, like The Moth, which you and I both love, Liz, but it's, it's funny how many, I was talking to Ramona about this book and she's like, she keeps referencing this other writer named David something who writes funny essays. And I was like, David Sedaris. And she's like, have you heard of him? I was like, I have. i doubt. (laughs) let Let me, let me, let me hook you up. Um, so, uh, as I said, I'm not very far into this book, but, um, it's, it's super readable and funny and, um, and digestible with lots of tips and it focuses on much of what we said before, which is that we have stories within us. You know, we have the ability to, um, but our life is is full of stories and what we say matters or what we have to say matters. And I think we all know, like you all know that friend who can like take the most boring thing and turn it into like a great story. And we all have that friend who can take like the most amazing thing and turn it into like a terrible story. <laughs> like the It's not, um, it's almost not as much about the subject matter as, as it is about sort of how we tell it. And uh, so the book is a, a bunch of, you know, tips and and tricks and and um, exercises that help you find your voice and and gain your voice and tell your story.
0: I like so, you, long like, story
1: short, Margot yeah. Lightman.
0: I like how you so nicely said I suggested it. I forced you and Ramona to both read it. Suggested. <laughs> it, suggested in that you have to, yes. <laughs> um, but I I recommend that every content marketer reads that book because it it fundamentally and radically changed how I approach storytelling. Uh, one of the most profound things that I got out of that book is that your stories need to be universal, that unless we can see ourselves in your story and, and you're the storyteller in some way or another, we will abandon you quickly. We are selfish, self-focused beings, and the best stories are those that are relatable. So it really has just informed what is, what is the purpose of story storytelling, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um But yeah, it's, it's an absolutely outstanding book. And the other thing also that from a practical sense that I really like about the book is there's a whole chapter about how to ethically condense and edit your story in a way. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's like change, never change circumstances, but you can change certain details. Like you Mm -hmm. don't change the order of events. You don't change what actually happened. But like if you had three people, it's okay to like condense them into one for the purposes of right, telling the right. story. So I really liked that because that was always the mechanics that I struggled with is like, how do I quickly and easily tell the right story? So right. everyone needs to read it. It's an amazing book. It's awesome. Anyway, we've come to another end of an episode, John.
1: We have, that was fantastic. Great, disu- great, great discussion.
0: I know. But for everyone else, um, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. We love you. Kiss it. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.